just try first. You're listening to the news on RTHK. For the last three to five years, Department of Financial Services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to this Thursday's edition of Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. The S&P 500 rises to a record on data of the U.S. economy. The U.S. Beige Book report signals a very strong U.S. economy. And Cathay Pacific's pilots start a work-to-rule plan today, which may hurt flights. Today on Money for Nothing, we will discuss the U.S. Beige Book report with Quartz Editor-in-Chief Kevin Delaney. We'll also look at local markets with Ben of Sunrise Capital, and we'll talk with Amy Lowe of UBS Wealth Management about their company's involvement with Operation Santa Claus. And joining us through the half hour as special guest host is Enzio von File of Private Capital. Good morning, Enzio. Morning to you. So let's take a look at uh, today's top stories. The U.S. Fed's latest Beige Book report shows that U.S. economic activity continued to expand in October and November, with lower gasoline prices boosting consumer spending. The report says that optimism is on the rise in most areas and is in line with manufacturing and employment data, suggesting that the economy is weathering slowing global demand. Chris Rupke is the chief financial economist at the Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi, and he compares the results to markets activity in October. That's interesting because the stock market fell nearly 10% from mid-September to mid-October, and yet contacts remained optimistic. Part of the reason for the stock sell-off was concerned about too slow world growth. I guess the stock market doesn't always get it right. At any rate, it looks like the U.S. economy can continue to go its own way while the rest of the world faces slower growth. Despite a sharp drop in crude oil prices, the Beige Book also showed that drilling activity in shale production districts remained steady. So the question is then, are there any risks out there? Lower prices are supposed to be a plus, but then lower oil isn't good for everyone. The Fed cut rates a couple times in 1986 during an oil price collapse and unemployment rose in Texas and Oklahoma. Sure enough, the Beige Book this time flags the lower oil prices as being a concern for the oil industry in the Atlanta and Dallas districts. Net-net, the economy is running fast enough to lead to widespread job gains across the country. It's getting harder for Fed officials to maintain economic conditions are not satisfactory. The recession ended way back in June 2009. No other Fed in modern-day economic history, looking back to the 70s, has tried to keep policy this easy for this long into a new economic expansion. And Philadelphia Fed President Charles Plasser says that the strong job growth calls for a policy shift. It's clear that the economy has come a long way since the recovery began in June of 2009. To me... That means we should no longer be conducting monetary policy as if we were still in the midst of a financial crisis or in the depth of a dire recession. Financial crisis was an extraordinary event, and much of the commentary on monetary policy has focused on the actions of central banks 
in response to that financial crisis. It is very difficult for monetary policy to fine-tune the real growth rate of a large economy. So, Enzio, I'd love to get your take here. Uh, Do you agree with Charles Plosser when he suggests that monetary policy is not necessarily the best thing to fuel growth for such a large economy? I respectfully disagree because the way that the economic clock that we've used for years works is that the economy is always kick-started by an excess supply of money. In other words, the central bank really releasing a lot of money into the system, and that's then meant to get the jobs growth going. So everything that the monetary authorities have been hoping for, with which is stronger gro- jobs growth, that's actually coming through now. If that has to be maintained for a long, long time, that's a different question. But in direct response to your question, yes, this is how an economic cycle works. The central bank kicks off because those effects are much faster than fiscal policy stimuli that come later on. What about the notion that uh, uh, many analysts put out there which suggests that you know this kind of action uh, takes away the true picture from what how fundamentals should operate? Well, that's a little bit like saying that we're only looking at Mars and not at the moon at the same time. What I mean by that is that it's the, the economic cycle is based on, an econ- on a monetary easing first and foremost, and those then f- filter through, particularly in America where there's a fabulous, having lived there for so many years, where there's a fabulous can-do attitude. Remember that America still has a business cycle, so th- there's no covering up of fundamentals. The f- covering up of fundamentals are in those more mortuaries called Europe and Japan where there is no business cycle because Europe has welfared its way out of a business cycle and Japan has barricaded its way out of a business cycle. Okay, I think we need to bring in Kevin Delaney. He is the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Quartz.com. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Renita. Thanks for joining us today. You're visiting Hong Kong from New York City, is that right? That's correct, yes. Well, we are excited to have you on the show. Uh, So I have to ask you, Kevin, do you agree with Enzio? Are we looking at Mars? Yeah, I think that's a. I agree with Enzio, and I think the the idea that you you should abstract out uh, the the monetary in, uh, intervention as as artificially concealing the economy is not to recognize the context, which is the the huge recession and the economic shocks that the global economy has gone through over the last few years, and the need for a stimulus in the form of monetary policy to get employment and to get uh, business activity going again. What we're seeing now in all the economic data that you were mentioning coming out of the U.S. is that the U.S. economy, despite global headwinds, is actually turning in some very strong numbers and doing so uh, you know, with, with few signs of inflation so far uh, helped by the, the pressures on oil prices. That's right. Uh, The U.S. is certainly turning in very strong numbers. Let's listen to actually a little bit more about some of those numbers. Uh, The growth in U.S. services firms accelerated also in November, uh, pointing to uh, once again strong growth. Uh, AP's correspondent David Melendy reports. 
Businesses that employ 90% of the American workforce report continued strong growth last month and see a bright future, according to Tony Nieves, chair of the Institute for Supply Management's non-manufacturing survey. Non-manufacturing has increased uh, month over month. It's continuing on a strong uh, rate of growth. The ISM non-manufacturing index rose to 59.3 last month, from 57.1 in October. The faster pace is a signal that overall economic growth should remain remain robust. So separately, payrolls processor ADP said that private sector employment rose by 208,000 last month after increasing by 233,000 in October. And private payrolls have now increased by more than 200,000 in seven of the last eight months. So the jobs report and the Fed's uh, positive beige book report sent the the Dow and the S&P 500 to fresh record highs. The Dow rose 33 points to 17,912, which is its second straight record close and the S&P 500 gained two-fifths of a percent to close at the new high of 2074 and the Nasdaq was also up 0.4% to 4774 so Kevin good news all around for the US uh, the question is should we be celebrating uh, you know onto the long term or should we be concerned with what's happening everywhere else well, we will get some more data tomorrow out of the U.S. with the monthly jobs report. The expectations are that that uh, remains – the unemployment rate remains relatively flat and job creation remains relatively robust. So that's a number obviously your listeners are going to be paying uh, close attention to. And in general, the numbers look good for the U.S. The One after another, they're coming in pretty strong and suggesting a strong performance for the U.S. economy. The one hesitation I have is the global context, and I think that it is a little bit too uh, too flip to dismiss the the preoccupations about the the economic uh, difficulties that continue in Europe and Japan, um, and, and a lot of unknowns in the market, particularly as the price of oil comes down. Enzio, I can see you nodding there. Uh, yes, perhaps sagaciously. No, I tend to agree. I'm less worried about the headwinds because the net effect of exports on the U.S. economy is much lower than people would perhaps think. Seventy percent of U.S. economy, like any economy, is actually driven by consumption. That, as we all know, is driven by women. So um, I think that with the shopping season sort of opening up, things will continue with a lot more income security. But I would add that it is low inflation growth. That's where the global economy kicks in because so much of the U.S. production abroad, as we put out in this book, Trade Myths, is done by U.S. multinationals. It comes back into the U.S. as a cheaper good. And so the old myth that too much growth, too too many goods, too much money chasing too few goods, that's perhaps going to be a little bit a story of yesteryear going forward. Yeah, Enzio, a good point, by the way, about the women and shopping, but please don't forget the men who are buying their women holiday gifts. Okay, we, we need some of that. Ah, but I thought the women were supposed to be independent these days. Well, you, you know, Not I don't really. know. That, that might be dubious thinking <laughs> <laughs> to some level. Yeah, go ahead, Kevin. Well, and, uh, you know, while we're on shopping, it's worth talking about holiday sales. And the early indications for the holiday sales in the U.S. are that they'll be relatively strong. So uh, the CEO of MasterCard just came out yesterday and said their forecast for U.S. holiday sales is uh, is stronger than than last year. So an improvement, growth in, in U.S. holiday sales. It's it's the most concentrated consumer spending period of the year, and strength there 
uh, bodes well broadly for the economy. So the question then, Kevin, is is the why? Is it the Fed policy? Is this a result of that? Is it the low oil prices? Of course, it's bolstered by both to some extent. What's your take? This is a cosmic question that you're asking. Mm. Um, I think if we try to to unlayer it, unpack it, I think that the the lower interest rates, you know, undeniably have contributed to the economic growth. What we're seeing with consumer spending now, and it's very interesting, is that the employment picture is is playing a factor. Um, and the dropping energy prices for a, a significant swath of Americans mean that they have more disposable income to spend. So particularly around holiday times, if you're spending less as a consumer on energy, on gas for your car, uh, you're probably more likely to spend money on buying presents or you know, even, even some bigger purchases like a, a car or something like that. Enzio? I think to add to what Kevin is saying, view the cut in the oil price as a tax cut Mm. And that you have a nice sort of fiscal stimulus coming through right there. $70 billion, I believe, is what the kicker is for the U.S. economy, of which a major portion, the so-called propensity to, to consume, a major portion of that, say, 50 to 70 percent of that goes into spending. So, say, $50 billion extra in shopping by, yes, you ladies who are independent these days. Okay, great. Um, I like that tax cut. I mean, very, very on point there. But how much of a tax cut is enough? I mean, if oil goes below a certain price, you know, it becomes too expensive for some of those shale producers just to stay afloat. Well, this is a very good point, and this is why I've made the sort of somewhat Martian call that actually the commodity prices of anything are going to be rising next year because of a supply phenomenon, meaning that the commodity producers cut back production so much that at some point, even if demand just stays stagnant, there's just going to be too little of the stuff around. They will drive down the inventories, the production costs remain stuck at a certain level, and so it's a supply-side shock to the commodity price, not a demand-side shock. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, speaking of oil prices and uh, oil prices being low, one of the top stories on Quartz.com this morning, uh, Kevin, is about uh, Putin and the ruble, actually. Uh, so what we're facing here, what he's facing, I should say, is a plummeting currency, rising inflation, sagging oil prices, uh, and the ruble is going haywire. Let's fill us in. The ruble is going haywire. We're seeing volatility. We're seeing swings of 3 to 5% daily in the value of the ruble against the dollar. This um, this may not sound like a lot, but it is pretty extreme for movements in a currency. And if you look at the most one of the most liquid currency pairs, the uh, U.S. dollar euro. <laughs> There's huge volumes of trading, and the and the the swings in the uh, in the ex- in the rates of exchange between them is so much lower in the trading between them. So, what we're seeing in Russia is we're seeing kind of as you said a the ruble going haywire. Uh, right now, it's down about forty percent on the year against the dollar, um, and obviously this has a bunch of implications for. Uh, raises a lot of questions about Putin's um, plan for the Russian economy. So, uh, of course, the Russia might be looking at a recession uh, coming up, I don't know, perhaps next year. Uh, how worried do you think they should be, and how does this affect everyone else outside of Russia? 
It's, it's a very good question. If you look at um, if you look at the impact of the lower oil prices, the forecasts for are for a tremendous amount of strain on the Russian economy. Um, Russia is a, a really interesting economy because, in fact, it is basically the GDP of Russia is basically the same size as the GDP of Italy. Yet Russia has 140 million uh, people and a tremendous landmass. And is so dependent on energy to drive its economy, and so the 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 swings here and the the dynamics of the Russian economy are really interesting and complicated. As far as the rest of us being worried, I think Russia is a is a country where Putin has only solidified his control over the last few years, and so it's very. Uh, I think it'd be misguided to expect a lot of dramatic changes in the political or even the economic climate for Russia. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Kevin Delaney. He is the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Quartz.com. A quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up almost 1% to 17,894. Australia's ASX index is up uh, three-fifths of a percent to 5,336. And Seoul's Kospi is is up uh, two-fifths of a percent to 1,977. The time is now 8.19 a.m. and we'll be back with Ben Collette to talk more about uh, Hong Kong and China stocks very soon. Well, Beijing is reportedly moving forward with plans to merge its two top train makers in a bid to create a powerhouse that can export high-speed railway technology. Uh, Xinhua quoted an unnamed source as, a re- as reporting that a draft plan for the merger has been submitted to the State Council for approval, and the merger would create a company capable of taking on the likes of Germany's Siemens and Bombardier of Canada. Let's bring in Ben Collette, who is the head of Japan and Asia Equities at Sunrise Brokers. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. How are you doing? Very good, thanks. How about you? Uh, equally, equally well. A little chilly. A little chilly. A little chilly. Well, you know, tis, tis the season for chilliness. Yeah, it's feel like Christmas out there, huh? <laughs> that, that, That's the whole point, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So, Ben, uh, the companies, uh, you know, the two train companies have suspended their shares from trading pending uh, important announcements. What, what kind of announcements would those be? Uh, well, I mean, you know, it, it's, you, would, you would imagine some kind of um, uh, either capital increase or, or someone's taking a stake, but it, it's, it's purely speculation. We don't really know what's going on with these guys, um, uh, to be honest. So um, okay. we, we, have to, we have to wait and see. So, okay. Yeah. Well, well I uh, certainly, I mean, you know, all eyes are on China, uh, yeah. Chinese companies, Chinese stocks. The Shanghai Composite has advanced to its highest, I think, th- since July 2011. Yeah. Now, of course, this is despite numerous warning signals of slowing growth and so forth. What is your take? Indicates that 
necessarily know if it's fair to say that retail investor sentiment is more fragile than, than institutional. Um, everybody gets scared, but also everyone gets greedy. And I, I actually favor, despite the, um, uh, the backward-looking economic data, um, China is still the, um, uh, the biggest growth show on the planet at the minute, or at least investable growth show on the planet. Okay, um, Enzio, and your thoughts here, is greed good as far as China's stocks go? Beats fear. Beats fear. What I'm saying is that the I fully agree with Ben that there's very fragile consumer sentiment, but certainly on the way up it, China, it, it's funny that the markets on the one hand say that the Chinese stock market is terrible, but on the other hand, they say that China is an engine of growth. I'm not kind of squaring that circle. So I'm more in the China growth story. I think it's a bumpy road on the way up. 7% growth is still a very, very respectable figure. So Ben, how should the investor here in Hong Kong be thinking? Should we, now that we have the Stock Connect uh, you know, to work through, should we be replacing some of our Hong Kong stocks with Chinese stocks? How do we even out between the two? Uh, and, and do we treat this region as a whole versus our investments elsewhere? Um, they're, they're still very, very separate markets. As I said the um, you know the way you trade either of these, uh, uh, you have to look at the, at these markets. The, the stocks that aren't dual listed um, or represented in the A and H share, you have to treat uh, you have to do differently. And I think one of the things that's been frustrating. The institutional guys down here is the fact that that they you know trading um, uh, trading for a closing of the of the age premium or discount depending on how they how they're trading um, has been frustrating uh, a lot of investors. I, I don't think um, you still you treat the region yet as a whole, but eventually, of course, it will, and that's the point. Um, you know, opening of the market, uh, less or deregulation of the currency, um, and making uh, making the Chinese stock market much more accessible because of course that's that's what the uh, the connect is there for now how what do we um what do we like in china um i think uh i think if you uh, if you want to put some money to work on the long term then we we still favor the banks we like um we like the simple uh simple long term growth stories with these near like china life um as far as what you do in hong kong to be to be one hundred percent honest, Hong Kong is a very confusing market right now. A lot of the guys that we speak to, again, we are generally speaking very short term focused, and we are not, um, you know, we are not involved in in Hong Kong very heavily at all. Uh, yesterday, we were selling some of the moves that we see out there um, are, are uh, for want of a better word, pure uh, pure madness. Um, and when you don't know uh, when you don't know what's going on, when you find that you are uh, the, the as uh, Shampoka, the, the stupidest person at the table, then you have to fold. So okay. we're going to wait to see uh, to see what we um, to see what we uh, we can interpret in Hong Kong. We do favour them. We like the market. I do think we're um, we're due a pullback. We have um, rather uh, we're a lot of uncertainty over these Hong Kong protests. Whether they have a direct effect or not, we don't know. But certainly they're they're impacting our sentiment right now. All right, I, Ben. I fancy holding the Chinese banks, but basically the rest will uh, will let smarter people. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Ben Collette. He is the head of Japan and Asian equities at Sunrise Brokers. So, Enzio, uh, what do you think of that? It's uh, maybe hold back on the local madness and uh, ride the train up north for the Chinese banks. Well, I would actually always put forth that Hong Kong is the water skier off the back of the Chinese speedboat. So whilst these Occupy Central protests, without a shadow of a doubt in my mind, have clearly dented markets here. Why would an international asset allocator put something into a market where you can't even get to the office any day anymore? Um, I think that the 
ultimate story will revert back to mean, which goes to say that we are a function of the Chinese economy, which I see as being relatively robust, particularly against the slowing global growth in these mortuaries of Japan and Europe. You always have the greatest quotes, Enzio. We need to just put them together in the Enzio book. Thank you. (laughs) Well, UBS was the top uh, corporate donor to Operation Santa Claus, raising more than 5 million Hong Kong dollars. This year, the company is uh, planning a number of fundraising activities with an in-house drive to begin in earnest next week. Uh, It uh, will also culminate in a special event on December 12th. So joining us to discuss this now is Amy Lowe, the chief executive of UBS Wealth Management in Hong Kong. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. So tell us about the fund, uh, fundraising effort that will kick off next week. Oh, yeah. As you uh, said earlier, our partnership with Operation Santa Claus began uh, as a very small team effort 14 years ago. And now has really grown into a branch-wide kind of event. And um, last year we raised a record-breaking $5 million. Uh, Hong Kong dollar, and uh, I know this is the single largest uh, donation in the Operation Santa Claus kind of history. Yep, we need uh, you. <laughs> we'll do our best. We need you to be Santa. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do our best. So what are you aiming for this year? Uh, we'll do our best. Uh, we won't share with you the, okay. the ambition yet, but uh, there are quite wide range of um, activity, fundraising kind of a campaign internally. And um, so by all areas of the bank from different division as well. Um, for example, we have the bake sales auctions with items like handbags, um, bottle of wines. Bake nice sales. Are, are these the home-baked? Yeah, uh, they are all goods. home-baked sales. So and you guys are bankers and chefs. I mean, that's just multi-talent right there. What do you think, Enzio? We need the multi-talent. Always <laughs> cooking up something in the kitchen. Yes, yes. Back to, I, I, you know, I, I've noticed that when you're on the show, we always, you know, a lot of our conversations go back to the kitchen, which I like, which Amy clearly likes as well. Good, good. Yes. Well, that always raises money. That's good. Exactly. All right. So, Amy, when will we uh, be able to have a read as to, um, uh, you know, what that final figure is? We will do our best to defend the champion. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) defend the champion. All right, well, thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning, and good luck with it. Thank Uh, you. We'll be supporting you. This is uh, Amy Lowe, who is the chief executive of UBS Wealth Management in Hong Kong. A quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up 4 fifths of a percent to 17,864. Australia's ASX index is up uh, 3 fifths of a percent, and so is Seoul's Kospi. Australia is at 5,000. 1,333 and Seoul's Kospi is at 1,982. In currencies, one euro currently buys you 1.23 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 119 yen and one pound sterling is currently worth 12 Hong Kong dollars and 16 cents. Brent crude oil is at 69 dollars and 92 cents and gold is at 1,207 dollars per ounce. So Enzio, here we are at uh, the end of the show. What should we be looking out for at the tail end of this week? I think that you want to be looking out for more and more messes in Ukraine. The underreported story is that the West is really kicking up a lot of storm in Ukraine by pushing NATO up onto, onto Russia's front step. And so it's something that Kevin was saying before, that with the economy really slowing, I think there's going to be a much greater mess there. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning as co-host. That's Enzio Von File. He is the investment strategist at Private Capital. And this is Renita Malhotrohora wrapping up for Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. Um, today it will be cloudy and overcast with rain. It will become cold. The temperature right now is 14 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 86%. It's time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. About 1,700 Cathay Pacific pilots are set to work to rule from today after rejecting an offer of a 4% pay rise. The Travel Industry Council has expressed concern that the industrial action could hurt tourism during the busy Christmas period. Joseph Tung, the executive director of the council, told RTHK this morning he hoped both parties could reach an agreement as soon as possible. Because of the protests in Hong Kong, quite a number of uh, group tours have been cancelled. The travel industry, I think we are trying our very best to uh, sort of promote Hong Kong because Christmas is always a very good season for overseas visitors coming to Hong Kong. And in case there is such an action from the pilot, I think definitely that will create some problem for the airlines. And then it's difficult for us to do any kind of promotion if this uh, thing happens. A doctor monitoring the health of hunger-striking students from scholarism says the three who launched the protest are going through a difficult time. The group's convener, Joshua Wong, and two others started fasting on Monday night to press the government to restart talks with student democracy protesters and to reboot.